0: I was pretty sure that all of the sin, all of the sin in my town was held up in the Green Spot Tavern. The Green Spot Tavern pulsed with the devil's music when we drove by. It had uh, lights that needed to be fixed and gutters that needed to be pushed back up and it needed a fresh coat of paint. When we would drive by a family of six in the car, no one said a word. On the weekends, the cars would crowd and spill out into the streets at the green spot tavern. I was pretty sure no one inside there had ever been in church. And I could hear the little lyric in my mind, I don't know what would come to you, but for me it was, oh be careful little feet. There's a father up above and he's what? Looking down in love. So be careful little feet where you go, those poor people in the green spot must not have had Sabbath school. That's what I decided. Sinners and tax collectors and pagans and prostitutes, well, the the solution for this is proximity. Whatever you do, stay away from the green spot. And lucky for me, my house was further out the country road, so this could be solved. As a little girl growing up as a conservative Christian, and in my North American context, be ye therefore perfect is a text that I knew as a little girl who also grew up in the tradition of Ellen White, and if that's a new name for someone here today, Ellen White is a voice in our Seventh-day Adventist tradition that's very important to us. As someone who grew up in Ellen White's tradition, these lines from Ellen White are also in my mind. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. See, Ellen didn't say all the people have to be perfect, just the Christians, right? It's on us. Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is imperfect and when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in God's people. Church, when I need help at moments like this, I reach for the voice of Jesus. And if you thought you were coming today and maybe we were going to have a sermon for those of you who care about what happened at annual council in the church business ses- session on the East Coast, I find it more helpful today that we reach for the voice of Jesus. We're doing that now. We're reaching for Jesus through Matthew's voice. And if possible, we'll see if we can hear Matthew's Jesus without the voice of the Apostle Paul, and Matthew's Jesus without the early church fathers, Aquinas and Augustus, and Matthew's Jesus without maybe even Alan White's voice, and Matthew's Jesus without other thinkers in our tradition and Adventism, Emma Andreessen, and questions on doctrine, and Jesus without any other independent ministry that claims to know what a last generation will be like. We're trying to hear Jesus' voice this morning. Matthew chapter five. Jesus has been out to the desert for 40 days and he's come home. He's met the evil one. He's now home to sleep and get a meal and regroup. This is when the first disciples are called and Jesus is gonna stand up. We've talked about this moment often where Jesus can stand up and say anything now at the beginning of his ministry. This is where you set the tone and the platform and the program and the process. What will the Jesus community be like? He's called a few disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They've got front row seats. There's a crowd looking on. They're sitting on a mountain. And this is when Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks. Jesus says, blessed are the hopeless and blessed are the grieving and blessed are the gentle and blessed are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and blessed are those who show mercy and blessed are those with pure hearts and blessed are those when people persecute you because of me, they persecuted the prophets also. This is in the beginning of Matthew's long teaching segment, Matthew chapter five to seven. We have these large lectures in in the Gospel of Matthew and we learn from Jesus this day that the Jesus movement will declare divine blessing on people who feel hopeless and grieving and who are thirsty and hungry and these are conditions people don't usually choose. And if you commit to the movement, it'll be difficult. As we've said often around here, it's not the easier life, it's the better life. What Jesus next says are some of his most difficult instructions and there are many of them. 37 of these imperatives, don't judge, turn the other cheek, don't worry about anything, don't think about your money, right? Right? On and on and on, through this section, Jesus keeps telling the people some of the most difficult teachings He gives us. And then even Jesus concludes this section by saying, in Matthew 7:14, "The gate is narrow, and the road is hard in this life." When I chaperoned a group of eighth grade students years ago to the General Conference headquarters, our corporate building on the East Coast, We took a tour and we saw this painting by Alfred Lee. By the way, Alfred Lee is the artist who's done all the artwork in the lower level of our church. You remember that? The same artist who did this painting, Christ of the Narrow Way, is the artist who's done all the artwork next to the children's divisions in the lower level. This uh, painting got to one of our students on the tour. If you look closely, you'll see that some of the people are falling off the path because Because indeed, in this teaching and in this vision, Mrs. White says, there will be some who fall into the doom of this world. One of our eighth grade students asked the college-age tour guide, what's happening to the people who are falling off the pathway here? And there was an awkward, uncomfortable pause, and the tour guide said, well, what we should notice is look how many people make it. And please don't ask those questions. The tour guide moved on. The student did not. And there we stood for a long while. Be therefore perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. It's complex to know, church, where we get the tapes in our head, the voices in our head, where the soundtracks come from. Is it because we were on a tour once in the building and we heard that explanation, we saw people. Is it because we heard our grandma on her knees pouring her heart out, God bless my grandchildren, save them for the kingdom? Is it because of sermons we've heard, Bible studies we've taken, Bible teachers? Is it, is it because of something we've heard? We exercise so much trust when we leave our children with other adults for Sabbath school here, week by week by week. Is it something the kids heard on the playground? Is it something we talked about over dinner or in the car? Is it something we simply didn't address and we moved on? It's not easy to know where the voices in our head come from. And some of us here today may be thinking, I'm not really troubled by this verse, Pastor. We're going to lean in and see. Be ye therefore perfect, because there's an entire new generation in the Adventist church that is rethinking and that is fueled up on this particular idea. Can there be a generation that lives without sin and then the end will come? I mean, why else are we here still, church? Be ye therefore perfect. Can we do a literal reading of this one verse in Matthew chapter five? Well, the word perfect in the original language, and it doesn't matter pretty much which Bible translation we use, most of it gets translated as perfect, most often for this word um, Telos or teleos—it means the end, the completion, to mature, to mature or to perfect something. It's—it's got—it's got got something out there in mind to be completed or perfected. And by the way, this is one of Dr. Charles Teal's favorite words. If you're coming this afternoon to the lecture, this was a word we heard often in his classroom. What the word doesn't carry is an ethical perfection of growing to something, some endpoint where we can conquer our humanity. What the word doesn't say is sinlessness or sinless, because in Jesus' first century culture, there's no way the word could have been heard that way. All right, then we turn to the Gospel of Luke. Now roll up your sleeves because this is what we do in Bible study. We we turn over to the Gospel of Luke because Luke has the same verse. Maybe Luke can help us. Luke's Jesus also has difficult teachings and Luke's Jesus also has that sermon where they listen to see what the kingdom will be like and Luke's Jesus also has all those imperatives. Turn the other cheek and love your enemy and your neighbor and don't worry about your money. But Luke will not be drawn into this conversation because in the Gospel of Luke we get an entirely different word. Be ye therefore merciful. Oh, you feel better, don't you? I heard you. Oh, thank God we can go to lunch now. It's a completely different word. Mercy and pity and compassion. Luke reaches for a different word, and we don't always know why the scribes in scripture do this. We have what we have, All right, Luke doesn't want to be in this conversation, so we turn back to Matthew again. What else can we learn from Matthew, the way Matthew uses this word? He only uses it one other time in Matthew chapter 19 when the rich young man asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, the commandments. Yeah, I've done all of that. What else? This is when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, if you wish to be perfect, that's our word, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. (laughs) Oh my word, I gotta get rid of my stuff. Can I keep one screen or two? When Matthew uses the word again, it's attached to preferential treatment of the poor and trust in God. Do you hear it? Oh, and the teaching is so heavy, the Bible says the man walks away, he can't bear it that day. Before Jesus is done, he will also look to the religious instructors, the teachers of the day, and he'll say, By the way, woe to you! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith, it is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others, you blind guides! You strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Your commandment keeping hasn't brought you any closer to the divine one. You're great commandment keepers, but lousy kingdom partners, Jesus says. So we, we come back to Matthew 5 again. Are you still with me, church? By the way, if you're going to church somewhere where the Bible isn't open, then we've not done it well. So we go back to Matthew chapter 5. All right, what else? We have one verse in the middle of an entire chapter. George Knight, the historian, tells us it's not whether perfection is possible, it's actually what does it mean. So we go back to Matthew chapter five where this verse is nestled and we notice that in between all of these imperatives and difficult commands, we also see the word love, 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 love. It's just scattered throughout and scattered throughout and scattered throughout. You can't miss it. With each choice to exercise love, we are maturing our character. We are growing up our character. We are perfecting our character. With every difficult choice to be in God's world with love towards one another, something's happening in us. This is what Matthew's Jesus says. So I think Eugene Peterson helps us when he translates our one little text. He simply says, grow up. Just grow up. Be generous, like God's generous. Live generously and graciously in the world. And this ought to end our conversation. Can we use this text to promote sinless living, that we will overcome our humanity sometime in this life? No, we can't, church. And if time allowed, we could do the same thing with this particular passage from Ellen White. Jesus' instructions are very, very clear here. He gives us all we need to go to our room, not, not because we're in trouble, but to sit still and think about it for a while. What does it look like to live that generously in God's world? What does it look like when I grow and grow and grow to maturity and love and I simply want to ask, how did we get so far off track? Conversations are real in this new generation, and I'm convinced that we don't unhear things we've heard in the past. It's not as simple as telling people, stop thinking it that way. Don't, that you've got it wrong. I, I could preach until Jesus comes, and some of us, will rem- we will struggle with this idea in our minds, we hear a different tape, a different story. There's a soundtrack playing. You remember in July when I shared with you these little soundtracks, these, these uh, files in my, my husband's car where he's programmed in a song to come on? Were you here in July when we talked about this? Great. When you drive my husband's car up to church, it sounds like this. We're going to play it for you one more time. I had no idea until I drove it one day. And then all of a sudden... Got close to the church. Okay, right. church bells. We talked about this in July. Church bells. I say to him, Why does your car play bells? Don't you want to know you're going to church? No, I already know where I'm going. I'm pretty sure I know what's coming next. But don't you want to know? So you can put your mind in a space and you can prepare yourself. I, learned, I understood this more when I drove his car to his work. Remember, I sh- shared this with you. This is Loma Linda University Health. This is what it sounds like when you drive through Loma Linda. <laughs> Don't you want to know you're at work? Da 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 da, da, da 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 da. Helps him put his mind in a space and be ready. And here's the question today: have Christians inserted the Kentucky Bugle call for the soundtrack of the Christian life? Stand up, show up, get up, turn up, do it right, straighten up, be ready day by day, month by month, year by year, because then maybe Jesus will come. Have we inserted that soundtrack, friends? One of the little books given to me by one of you, a self-professed, grouchy one of you, is a book I've come back to again and again. How Good Do We Have to Be is the title. Harold Kushner tells us that the reason we have these voices in our head comes from the very beginning of our story. We can tell the story one of two ways and the beginning of the story matters so deeply. Ours is a story of misbehaving and punishment in God's world. This is one of the options on the, on the right. Ours is a story of misbehaving. God put us in the garden. We made one mistake. We feel guilt and shame and remorse and we spend the rest of our lives attempting to do better so that perhaps one day God will love us fully in the end. Kushner says, be careful with that version of the story on the right because it says a lot more about God than it does about us. This talks about the conditional nature of God's love and God's forgiveness to say that ours is a story of punishment, to say that God can't, the tentative nature of God's love. There's a better way to tell the story on the left. Ours is a story of complexity, of being human in God's world. And we can see this illustrated, Kushner says, because when the humans go to the tree, we know what God doesn't say to them, Stop it, what are you doing? Stop breaking things and eating my fruit and get out of here. God doesn't say that. God pulls them close and God clothes them and God covers them. So it is, Kushner says, we have a better way we can tell this story from the very beginning. Ours is a story of being human in God's world, how much different it would be if we would walk around the world understanding, today I will disappoint you and I will make mistakes and we'll need to look at each other and say, I'm sorry and please forgive me because I'm a human in God's story. The one thing we will never overcome and gain the victory over is being human creatures in God's story. But what we do with our humanity in God's story is what matters next. So I wonder, how did we get so off track that we sit around worried if we've committed sins or done things wrong rather than see ourselves in God's great and generous story in this world? We can look at the Rabbi Kushner for help. Maybe we can simply go to Marie Kondo, Remember in the first of the year, tidying things up? Ah, we take things out of our past, we thank them, we release them, they no longer are needed in the future. Maybe we need to do some theological tidying up if we want to tell a better story in Adventist Christianity. Maybe we take out this idea of sinlessness and perfection here on earth, we thank it for its service, and we don't donate it to someone, take it to the dump. Because it no longer belongs I'm asking you seriously now, when's the last time you sat together with your family and asked, what do we believe in, why do we believe it? And we don't know where this idea came from and it doesn't belong. Maybe we need to remove it. Maybe we turn to wise voices in the world like Brene Brown, right? Brene Brown would say of this idea that perfectionism doesn't protect us from getting hurt, it protects us from being seen. So she's the latest voice, one of the latest voices in our head, and we listen to her because she makes so much sense, not because it's trendy. We listen because we understand that mental health communities and wellness communities and social scientists are actually talking about this today. We listen because it turns out that this is a positive trend in our society. Talking honestly about our lives, showing up as who we are, being able to speak truth about what's happening to us, And maybe this is also why places like Alcoholics Anonymous are easier than the church. Because when I go to AA, I can show up a broken mess. We gather over our brokenness in a group like that. How do we get rid of these tapes in our head? Maybe we can turn to science then, for the two or three scientists in the room. This is a huge and new conversation the last few years. Epigenetics, this idea that our genes inside of our body are influenced by experiences and environments around us. That when things are happening around us, genes in our body are turned on, they get cued to do a thing, or they're silenced to not do a thing. Here's a small example, all the way from 1944 in the Second World War. In the Second World War, there's something called the Dutch Winter of Starvation. This is at a time in, uh, in, in the Netherlands when the railroad workers went on a strike. They refused to be a part of the Nazi regime, so they would not let the trains pass through their country. And For that, the Nazi regime retaliates, and they cut off all the food supply to the, the certain part of the Netherlands. And during this time period, 20,000 people die. It will take months until food is dropped from the air to help people in this part of the world, but then the war is already over. Now the scientists look at the descendants, those who come, who, the women who were pregnant during the time of the Dutch winter of starvation, and what they learn is that the children born from that time period are born with a greater incidence of diabetes and high blood pressure and higher lipids, and these children have a higher incidence of certain kinds of mental health di- diagnoses. What they learn is that it is possible to pass on, to transmit trauma from one generation to the other. You didn't have to be alive in 1944 to experience the trauma of 1944. Isn't that fascinating? So you can use other examples. Why is it that colonized people or slavery people, uh, those who have come out of that context, that they're descendants generations later, I wasn't a slave, but my great-great-great-grandparent was. Why is it that you might need to parent those children differently than my children who were not slave descendants? Because we pass on intergenerational Trauma. Is this what it means when the Bible says under the third and fourth generation church? So scientists are learning so much in this field. I wonder, theologically, if we have something to learn. Theologically, is there there a theological epigenetics? Is it possible that we transmit uninterrogated trauma one generation to the next? Is it possible that not by any real choice of our own or because we intended to do any harm, is it possible that one generation can pass on a trauma that the next generation has to unpack? Is it possible we were taught to cower in the presence of the Holy One even though we can't even remember somebody in our lives who told us, cower in the presence of the Holy One? Is that possible? in a country where evangelical Christianity right now is making much worse, I wonder if Seventh-day Adventist Christians have a positive thing we could say. I have two ideas there. First... This is the 24 hours during the week where we rest from all of the voices that tell us to cower or all of the voices that tell us to show up or all of the voices that tell us we're not quite enough. This is the 24 hours we rest and we trust God to be God. Might Adventist Christians have something to say to the world? Take a break 24 hours a week and remember God is God and we are not. It's in that room of the Sabbath time I find I can let go and grace has space to appear. We might have something to say to the world. Second, I believe this strongly than ever, more strongly than ever. This is why I'm not paying so much attention to the East Coast this Sabbath. The church of the future will not be a church that is weak in its proclamation of Jesus. Now, we have a lot of work to understand what we mean when we begin to make these claims. Disciples behaving the way Jesus asked us to behave, caring about what Jesus asks us to care about. It's easier to talk about Jesus than to talk about what Jesus talked about. We taught ourselves as a group of Christians to care about small things. We taught ourselves to care about jewelry and coffee and sundown and buying things five minutes before the sun sets. Why is it I can talk about those things, but I can't talk about the inequitable distribution of resources in the community or the nation's capital? Or I can't talk about racism in the church because it's become too difficult? How is it we taught ourselves to talk about small things? I can talk about the investigative judgment of the soul, but I can't talk about the investigative judgment of our institutions and our policies. I can talk about the corrosive force of media in our homes, but not misogyny in the church. Friends, we taught ourselves to care about small things. It turns out I can talk about Daniel and Revelation till the beasts come home. But the Beatitudes are baby food. Someone tell me how this happened. I taught myself to care about the things I wanted to discuss. The large things, church, take courage. You have ignored the weightier matters of the law, says Jesus. Where's the beauty in all of this? Rabbi Kushner would remind us Don't expect the pastor can just preach a sermon and you'll get all those voices out of your head. Don't expect you can go home and tell your child, it's ridiculous, stop thinking that way. These are not rational thoughts. So be patient with one another. Say, I'm sorry, and offer forgiveness, and confess more regularly. And there is still a world full of large things, church, and we are still alive This is the beauty in all of it. Tell a better story about our salvation. It turns out we can lay down our anxiety about our salvation. That's God's work. And I can redirect that energy to something God cares about in this world. I can spend my soul while God is saving it. So hear the words as we close from Linda Underwood. This is the title of her poem, All This Talk of Saving Souls. Souls weren't made to save, like Sunday clothes that give out at the seams. They're made for wear. They come with lifetime guarantees. Don't save your soul. Pour it out like rain on cracked, parched earth. Give your soul away, or pass it like a candle flame. Sing it out loud, or laugh it up with the wind. Souls were made for hearing breaking hearts, puzzling dreams, remembering August flowers, and for forgetting hurts. These men who talk of saving souls, they look like they have the look of bullies who blow out candles before you sing happy birthday. They want the world to be in alphabetical order. I will spend my soul playing it out like sticky string into the world so I can catch Every last thing it touched. Want to tell a better story? Let's spend our souls while God is busy saving them. Amen.